So this is the beginning of our second season of this series where we talk about work, rest, and play. Uh, And so for me, it felt that the obvious place for us to begin uh, this series this year was to begin by talking about a mountain. Um, and particularly a mountain called Mount Sinai that Moses and the people of Israel find themselves around. I know that you too were thinking this is exactly where we should start this series. Um, (laughs) Moses and the people of Israel have just found themselves rescued from slavery. It's been quite an incredible journey. Some people would say an unbelievable journey where God has brought them through uh, threat of armies, threat of drowning, and he dumps them at the edge of this desert and they have this moment where they need to kind of navigate what the future is going to look like for them. And so the Lord, he says to Moses, hey, listen, Moses, you need to come talk to me on this mountain. Um, So God and Moses are going to have a meeting. So it's like an everyday occurrence, right? Um, No, it's not. Um, So so, so God and Moses are going to have this conversation. and, And you see the sense of, you know, like what would you do if you heard that the kind of boss was heading up a mountain to talk to God? You might think, you know what, I'm going to sneak along for that business trip. Um. So, so God and Moses start to have this conversation about how we're going to deal with the fact that we really don't want, God doesn't want everybody coming up onto this mountain. In Exodus chapter 19, uh, which I know you were all reading before you came to church this morning, um, the Lord says to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. And so Moses heads off and he kind of sorts some of this stuff out. And then he comes back to God and he says to, uh, as the text says here, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. Holy. So I want to begin our series this morning by talking about this word, holy, which I can tell you are super excited about. Because we hear that word, holy, and it brings up certain experiences for us. And, and what does the word mean? And, and what, is the word, what is that word about? Perhaps, you know, you hear this word used sometimes in the context of like, oh, there's David. He's holier than thou. And that's not a compliment, even in England. And the... You know, you, you don't, you're not sat planning your party and you're going to be like, this party is going to be epic and it's going to really kick off. But there's always that point around about 10.30 at night, you know, where parties transition, where one party becomes a second party. You know that happens. It all happens. We're not quite sure how it happens, but there's a point in every party where just the right amount of people leave and the party moves into the next gear. Am I right? And you just, we live our whole lives just hoping that we're the people that are in the second sitting of the party, not the people that everybody's waiting to leave. And, and when you're working that party, like nobody goes and let's hope Jack stays because he's holier than thou. Because when, when holier than thou Jack comes, this party is going to go off. That doesn't happen, right? We don't even think of that as a compliment. It's not nice when somebody says, hey, you, you're really holier than thou. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not positive. Um, at least I'm just telling you, I don't find it positive when you guys say it to me. Um, <laughs> the, 
then there's another type of the word holy. Uh, so for example, maybe you come to my house and I say to you, uh, do you want coffee? And you say, hey, sure, I, I love coffee. And, and, and then I, I, I like to tell a story about my coffee. So I say to you, hey, this coffee. So this coffee comes from a farm uh, in Colombia and uh, the farmer's name is Jose. And he runs a small farm uh, that's, that's roughly around about 2000 meters above sea level. And he hand grows this particular crop, which they, they didn't wash, they let dry in the sunshine just to really extract the flavor out of these coffee seeds. And then it was brought as green beans to Calgary where it was lightly roast so that just at the first crack of the coffee bean, they took it out of the roaster and then I served it to you through a, a cotton filter in my Chemex. And I dropped this through to you with the water at, at 93 degrees centigrade because I measure in centigrade because, well, the whole world does. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then I bring it to you and I serve it black because not with milk and with sugar because, uh, well, I'm not a complete Satanist. And, uh, and so I, I, give you this, I give you this coffee and you say, oh, this is good. I'm kind of I'm feeling flat. But you take a sip of this coffee and you say, holy guacamole, David, this coffee's amazing. Now I'm excited. Now I'm thinking this bean's journey was worth it. Because when I add the word holy in front of something, maybe you noticed in the text just a minute ago, the word holy and Moses were in the same bit of the Bible. I wanted to head the text, holy Moses. Uh, it's the Bible, but I wasn't sure if that was appropriate in church. I'm still figuring these things out. And, and so we use this word holy to add to the emphasis of the situation. If you apply holy in front of almost any word, right? You can just apply it. And as long as the word that you apply holy in front of doesn't really make a lot of sense, we get that you are super into whatever it is that's happening. So holier than thou or holy guacamole, uh, this word is used differently. And Moses says to God, like, hey, nobody's gonna come up and touch the mountain because the mountain is holy. The Hebrew word that's used there is the word kadosh. I feel like we should say that word together, kadosh. It's the sound that a boulder makes when you drop it in a lake. Um, uh, so you know that thing when you were a kid and your sister was trying to skim rocks uh, on, on, in the edge of the lake and, and she was trying to get the rocks to skim and you sneak up behind her with the biggest rock you can carry and try and throw it over her so that it lands and gets her all wet. Well, that noise that it makes as it hits the water, that's kadosh. And you'll never forget the Hebrew word for holy ever again. But you'll find yourself, once you remember that, having transcendent moments by the lake. Uh, Hold on while I remember what I'm talking about. Um, the, so, kadosh means to be separate. It means to be set apart. So, so when Moses says, hey, this mountain is, is kadosh, what he's saying is this mountain isn't just any old mountain. This mountain has been separated slightly from all other mountains. We, we know it's different. We know it's holy. And it's holy and it's different and we need to be kind of a little bit cautious around the holy uh, because it's sacred. The word sacred and holy are essentially the same comment and same, same conscious. Uh, once again, uh, I, I've forgotten my notes. Uh, the, the word holy and the word sacred are the same concept. And so, so we make this mountain holy and we put it over there and we kind of try and draw a little bit of distance between it and everything else. We do this with holiness 
all the time. As soon as you say something's holy in the contemporary world, we often think, okay, it's something over here, and we should treat it differently, we should behave differently around it, we should talk differently about it. But most significantly, it's something that's far off. It's something that's slightly out of reach. In fact, in the Psalms, one of the Psalmists uh, talks in, in Psalm 24, he says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? Like there's this holy space and we realize that there's this holy space, but it's, it's sort of slightly out of touch from us. And we kind of get this notion with holiness that we probably shouldn't, we probably shouldn't, you know, go near it. We should have some sort of distance because holy is dis different from us. I know this because we apply the notion of holiness to all sorts of things. We have holy spaces, you know, so you come to church and you're talking about something in church and you maybe use a particular word, you know, maybe it's French or Anglo-Saxon or something like that. And your wife turns to you and, and, and she says, don't use that word. We're in church. That's just me. Okay. And, uh, the, uh, or, or perhaps you, uh, you have a particular, I, I'm a pastor, right? So I, I get this, this way that people treat us a little differently. So for example, I quite regularly, uh, I, I like to go running and, and, and I like to go running for a long time and uh, I go to running for a long time and not many people want to do that with me. Um, I tell myself it's because of the distances I run and that helps me avoid the hope that it's not something to do with my personality. And um, and so we go running for a long time and so I'll meet new people and we'll join them and, and, and we'll go running because it's a small group of people that want to run the sort of distances that we do. So you just take anybody that's breathing. And we'll be on these, we'll be on these runs and invariably, you know, probably an appropriate question for this series, somewhere around about half an hour to an hour into a run, eventually you've kind of exhausted, whoa, look at the mountains and oh my goodness, is that a bear? And, uh, and, and, you, and you start to have deep and meaningful conversations. So somebody will say to you, so what do you do? At which point I say to them, well, I'm a pastor. And at which point then we embark on a small sort of five to 10 minute silence. <laughs> wherein, wherein the person that's running starts to review their conversation for the previous hour um, to assess it for its appropriateness and volume of swearing. And, uh, and, and this, is, this is my life, because somewhere along the line there's this idea that pastors are more holy than everybody else, which means they're slightly separate. They're slightly over there. And, and there, I, I have a friend who, um, who likes to run with me and, and new people, uh, because she tries to, in the first hour, talk the new people into having really inappropriate conversations, because she knows that what's coming in about an hour's time is me going, yes, I'm a pastor, and no, I don't think you should do that because, uh, because I am offended. Um, so, the, so what we do is we push the holy sort of over here at, because it needs, to be, it needs to be separate from everything else. Um, I grew up around Christians who were part of a movement that was called the holiness movement. And that sounds exciting. Um, and, you know, because <laughs> conversations are really exciting. You know, when I started this sermon, you know, there was at least one of you turned to your partner and like, I wanted to go skiing this morning, but you were like, no, let's go to church. And, you know, uh, but, <laughs> but I grew up around this, this movement that called themselves the holiness movement. And then they believed, and then they were beautiful people and, and they, loved, they loved Jesus, um, I think. And uh, they... <laughs> They believed that, that, that holiness involved being separate. So this holiness involved us being over here while everybody else is kind of over there. And the way that they wanted to, to live in that was to somehow visibly and physically represent that, that they were different from everybody else. Uh, they did this by being horrendously out of style. Um, 
Uh, so what everybody, everybody was wearing, they would wear clothes from 30 years previous. That was the one thing. And the other thing, that they used to do was they insisted that, that men had a particular dress code. Um, so, so I grew up around, around people that, that said, so, so men uh, should always uh, be clean shaven, not have a beard. Uh, so you can tell it was very formative times for me. Um, and, uh, and, and men should have short hair, definitely not long hair. And, and men should wear long pants, right? Uh, and so when we used to go hang out with these people, we had to dress in a way that wouldn't offend them, which was kind of like long sleeves and long pants. I, at 13, used to wonder what it was about a 13-year-old's knees that were so likely to cause people to sin. Um, but that's the way it was. And then ladies, it wasn't just men. Ladies got uh, issues as well. So ladies had to, uh, had to wear dresses, never trousers, because they might be mistaken for a man. Um, th- there's a joke in there, but I'll just, I'll just avoid it. Um, because because I'm really good in public situations. And uh, so, so the, they had to wear dresses. It had to be long dresses, not short dresses, you know, because of um, knees. And, uh, and, and also the ladies weren't allowed to wear makeup because that would be considered sinful. Um, I mean, some of these ladies, it was maybe sinful for them not to wear, no, so let me know. Uh, the, But it was all about how you appeared. It was all about how you looked. You had, to, you had to look a particular way. And the theory was that people would look at them and go, yeah, you're separate, you're apart. And, and looking at these sort of unpainted, long clothed wearing people, uh, I think the notion was that the average pagan would see them and think, I just gotta be like these people because I, I, I want to be holy. holy. Uh, I, I, I have no empirical data to know whether that worked or not, but I'll let you guess. Um, and this notion that we grew up around was that holiness was always something that you had to appear and had to be far away from. Because what starts to happen, and you see this even in ancient Israel, this notion, oh, there's this mountain, and, and God's on this mountain, and he's holy. And if we, us regular people, if we go to this mountain and touch it, it's going to ruin the mountain. Uh, and, and although we maybe think, okay, well, that was Moses and that was in those days, or then we laugh at a, at a story about people that said, no, we're going to be over here, wear long pants and no makeup and, uh, and be clean shaven. You know, we kind of go, oh, that's, a, that's a, a little nuts. But I wonder if somewhere in our notions of holiness, we still have this idea that to be holy involves being really separate from everybody else. And not only do we think that then it involves being separate from everybody else, we start to talk about the notion of holiness as if it's, as if it's fragile, as if like anything that I do is gonna ruin holiness. So, you know, if, if I touch the mountain, you know, holiness is, is, is gone from the mountain. If, if my pants start to become above the knees, holiness is gone from, from everybody around us. And almost as if holiness is fragile and easily infected. Um, and once it's infected, then it's ruined and there's nothing we can do about it. It's kind of like the sort of theological equivalent of, of what happens when somebody pees in the pool. Um, where it's like, okay, we saw what happened, but now we kind of can't really clean the pool out now because, well, it's there now, right? And um, I discovered... Okay, this has got nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just going to share it anyway, right? I discovered this week just to, that, that there is a chemical in urine that chlorine doesn't kill. And I just want you to reflect on that the next time that you're in a swimming pool, okay? Um, and uh, actually, let's just push it a little further because we've got time. Do you also know that when you turn up at a swimming pool and can smell chlorine, you know that thing? 
And that gives you confidence because you're like, hey, you know, I can smell the chlorine, therefore this pool's clean, you know that? You know, if you can smell chlorine, it means it's not working to kill the germs. Because if it is working to kill the germs, you can't smell it. God bless you with your kids this afternoon. Um, So that has like vague things to do with our teaching this morning, but I feel like we also want to have a public service role here at Westside. So so that's it for this morning. So we kind of feel like, okay, all this is in the pool and now we can't get it out. So holiness is ruined. So basically it's just now just any old mountain like the rest of these and we've totally ruined it. And, and you might say, okay, well, we're talking about mountains in long pants, but, but many of us, if you've grown up in church, you've kind of picked up on this notion where your parents would say to you, hey, you know, Jack, I don't want you to play with those kids because those kids are pagans. And, and what's going to happen is they're going to draw you into all sorts of terrible stuff because, because you're holy, you're our kid. And if you start playing with them, you're just going to get all messed up. And there's this kind of notion within Christianity that if people who are holy spend any time with people who are not holy, what happens is the not holy people start to become unholy. And we do this with our workplaces as well. So Christians start to think in certain contexts of separation. So the dream for many Christians is to work in a Christian place of work, or the dream is to be surrounded permanently by Christians all the time, because this is safer Somehow there's a notion that this is safer. And you don't actually need to have gotten into church for that, for that long. You, you, you know, I, I, as I said, I run with people that don't go to church. And yet still, as soon as you mention that you're a Christian, there's this perception of, oh, okay, there's a little bit of something there. Is it okay for me to use these words around you, tell these stories around you? Whatever it is, we sort of seem to want to think that holiness is fragile and easily damaged and broken. In Mark chapter five, in the New Testament, uh, right in the middle of Mark telling us these stories about Jesus, he tells us this story. He says, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. In Jewish law, around about the time of Jesus, if you were this woman, you would be decidedly considered not holy. A woman who was in this sort of situation would be unable to be around people, to be honest with you. Because if you're unholy in the way that this woman's considered unholy, if she was to come along, for example, and invite you to our house for supper and say, hey, here, please sit here. The very fact that she's touched this chair makes this chair unholy, which means then if you touch this chair, you also are unholy. So if you want to go to the temple and offer sacrifices or go to the synagogue and be part of the community, if you've encountered a woman who is in the situation that this woman is in, you wouldn't be able to do that. So this woman is excluded. She is very much over here in the profane and everything else sacred is over here, which means her religion has been impossible for her for many years. Maybe, uh, you know, we don't know much about this woman. If she's married, uh, being with her husband uh, would be unholy. Touching her kids would be unholy. Having a hug from a friend would be unholy. Making food for people would be unholy. Mark says she had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and she was no better but rather grew worse. And she had heard about Jesus. She had heard about Jesus. So she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak for she said, if I but touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Think about this. This woman who has for 12 years, anything she touches is unholy. She thinks if I come up behind Jesus and touch him, I'll be made well. Immediately, Mark's favorite word. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, 
You see the crowd pressing in on you? <laughs> you nutcase, how can you say who touched me? Uh, nutcase bits in the, in the Greek. Um, uh, uh, but you can kind of you can kind of sense it in the in the English that the, the the disciples are going like seriously Jesus like you know this is too far. Um, he looked all around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, "Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease." You see what happens in the story. See, we thought you couldn't touch the mountain because we'd ruin it. We thought we couldn't touch the mountain because if we touch the mountain, if we set a foot on the mountain, if we touch a hand on the mountain, it will become unholy and it will become just like us. But if you look really closely at the text in Exodus, as much as you see it really clearly in this text here, actually it's all gonna work the other way around. The reason we can't touch the mountain is it might be too much for us. It might overwhelm us. And here this woman touches Jesus. And instead of Jesus being unholy, the woman is made clean. Maybe holiness is stronger than we think it is. Maybe being holy doesn't require us to handle it with kid gloves. Maybe we don't need to say to our, our kids, our friends, and maybe we don't even need to say to ourselves, oh, now that I'm a Christian, I need to keep myself sort of separate and far away because everything's gonna get ruined if I don't, if I don't actually sort of build this wall, this fence, this limit around things. Because here there's a woman and everything about this woman's story is telling us that if she's around Jesus, it's gonna cause problems for him. Can you imagine the disciples? They're like, oh, great. Like 2,000 years we've waited for a Messiah. We finally get one. This woman touches him on the road. He's now not holy. We'll have to start again. <laughs> but the other story happens. What happens is that actually you see the, the, her encounter with Jesus, her encounter with the holy, what it actually does is it starts to make her well again. It starts to draw her into a different trajectory, a different story, a different way of life, a different way of being. The Greek word that's used in this story is hagios. You know we have to say it. <laughs> hagios. Hagios is a Greek word. It means kadosh. <laughs> and, but it's interesting watching the word hagios, actually, because, because it, it, means, it means separate, but not separate as in over there, but it means separate as in different. See, we often assume that separate means far off, that separate means away, that separate means like, you know, something untouchable. But actually it seems, if you look closely at how the text seems to work it, that there's something different about holiness in the Bible. It's not about being simply far off, but it's about being different. So when Jesus walks along through a crowd and a woman reaches out to touch him, we think we know how this story goes, but Jesus is holy. Jesus is hagios. Jesus is kadosh, so Jesus is different. So instead of the story going the way we think the story is gonna go, the story goes a completely different way. The woman is made well, because Jesus is hagios. Now, what's fascinating about this is Paul, uh, this great kind of apostle of the early church and a big letter writer that he is, he quite regularly, when he writes to these kind of embryonic churches, he begins the, the, the letters with something like, uh, which is quite normal in those days, you begin with your own name. He says, hey, it's Paul, 
I'm writing to you a letter, all of you who are the saints in the church in Ephesus or the saints in the church in in Corinth or the saints in the church in Thessaloniki. And this sounds great because we know what saints look like. They're old, they're dead, and they have big hats. And um, and so so, so we go, okay, Paul's writing to these old uh, saints that, that perhaps you know, are, are these like kind of superheroes of the church. And, and then you kind of decide, you know, I'm going to do a little bit of study. So you go to your office and you get your Greek Bible off the, stay, off the shelf because I know that you do this. And, uh, and you get your Greek Bible off the shelf and you have a look up this word, uh, this word saints. And guess what? The word saints in Greek is hagios. Quite literally, the word means the holy ones. So Paul writes to a church in Corinth and he says to him, hey, holy ones, to the whole church. I'm like, oh, wow. Imagine that. Imagine being the holy ones that Paul thinks you're the holy ones. Imagine if Bobby got up one Sunday morning here and said, hey, we've got a, we've got a letter. It came from St. Paul. He says, hey, to the church at Westside, to the holy ones of Westside. And we're like, did you see what we did last night? Um, <laughs> if you knew that, I don't think you'd say that. And Paul says, hey, Corinth, to the holy ones of Corinth. And then he starts to talk about Jesus and how Jesus is constantly inverting the way that we think about the world and how there's a, there's a wisdom found in Jesus that, that kind of upside downs philosophy and, and, and throws out ideas of religion and, and turns everything around. And you're reading it going, this is amazing stuff. This is just awesome stuff to read. I can't wait till David teaches another series on this. And, uh, and then you get, and then Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, I got a few things I want to talk to you about. And uh, you holy ones. Um, it would be really great, this is the David Harvey translation, um, it would be really great if some of you could stop sleeping with your stepmothers. Holy ones. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting in church. <laughs> this is the Bible. Has somebody, has somebody inserted, is this like the Reader's Digest Bible and I, I'm supposed to turn to page 53 to continue with what's actually supposed to be there or, or what's, what's going on here. So Paul writes to this group of people and he says, hey, you are the holy ones. And then he starts to talk about the things that they're doing. And to be honest with you, you don't need to have been around people very often to kind of know that sleeping with your stepmother's offside. Expected more agreement on that. <laughs> I'll just be honest. I thought that was going to be a low bar and we were all going to go, yes, David, we agree. So maybe, um, maybe we'll do a different sermon for the rest of this hour. And um, <laughs> I mean, this is basic stuff, Paul says. Like, this is weird. It, and it's kind of gross, let's be honest. Um, what, what are you doing? That's your dad's wife. You know, like, like stop that. But he started this letter by calling them holy ones and he never corrects that. He never throughout the whole letter says, do you know what, change my mind, scumbags is the new term that we're gonna use for the Corinthian church. No, they're holy ones from start to finish. We think that holiness is this separate thing that's taken over here and if you mess it up, if you did something like you know, start to have a relationship with your, with your stepmother, that would definitely take you away from this but Paul doesn't seem to see it that way. It seems like holiness has a strength to it that instead of saying, hey guys, you are no longer holy because of the terrible things you're doing, instead he calls them back out and says you are holy and therefore you're acting kind of out of sync with that because holiness is strong. And holiness is, is, 
is able to do and survive and live in the real world. It doesn't have to be kept over here. And I think this is important for us because we have a tendency to think this way. Maybe you didn't grow up in a church that demanded you wear long pants and and maybe you weren't at Mount Sinai and told to keep away from the mountain. But many of us have this idea that holiness is something beyond us. And as a result, what we tend to do is we put holiness over here and we say, okay, this will be my little holiness space. And I'll go to church on Sunday, for example. And, and, that's, and, I, and I'll try and pray really hard while I'm on Sunday and try and kind of really hold it together while I'm in the service because I think if I do that, that'll kind of top up the holiness just enough. It'll keep me through the rest of the week. But in this circle here where all of that happens, now I'll move into my work life. And my work life is gonna be unaffected by all of this. My work life is gonna be just my work life. And you see this quite regularly that somebody that claims to be a, you know, a Christian and a Jesus follower, they're pretty much the same as, as everybody else. You know, there's all sorts, all sorts of statistics that show us that you know, Christians aren't notably better employees than people who are not Christians. Christians aren't harder working. They don't generally work earlier or later. They, you know, like the, it seems quite regularly that being Christian makes very little difference to a lot of people in their workplace. And in fact, for some people, they, they compartmentalize their holiness so much that it's possible that people over here aren't even really aware of their philosophy of life or how they, how they view the world or, or their, their faith or anything like that. You know? um, or what happens is, we assume that the only way to live the holy in our workplace is to be that guy. You know, we're like, hey, John, do you have a stapler? Uh, yeah, I do. Here's my stapler and a Bible. Uh, you know, or, or, you know or, or the type of person that, you know, uh, they've got this. Do you ever see those things that went around? This is maybe showing my age now. There used to be this thing you could do where you could go for, you could go for dinner in a restaurant and, uh, and you could leave a tip. And, and, and you, so you would leave like a, like a $20 bill. And, um, and when the, the server came to pick up the $20 bill at the end at the tip, actually it wasn't a $20 p- uh, bill. It was like a tract telling you how to follow Jesus. Because nobody wants to follow Jesus more than when they're angry. <laughs> and feel ripped off, you know? And, and it was like, and what we do then is we assume that the only way to be holy is to basically preach in our work and preach in our playtime, uh, and, and that's it. And we basically become these just irritating people because we're always working out a sermon somewhere or other. Hey, John, do you want some coffee? Well, you know, the coffee is dark and so is your life, Jack. Uh, you know, and, and, that's, uh, and that's why most Christians are lonely. Um, and now... But what if holiness doesn't work like that? What if holiness isn't supposed to be compartmentalized? What if holiness is supposed to be out in the street and within touching distance, just like it was with Jesus? Now, the English have a word for kadosh and hagios. The word is holy. Do we need to say it together? It's holy, there we go. Now, the English word holy etymologically comes from another English word, and that word is the word whole. I didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) Holy means to be whole. So think about that for a second. Does holiness mean something that's far off and distant and separate from us? Does it mean something that's beyond us and fragile? Does it mean something that if I touch it, it's ruined? Does it mean it's something that if I bring it out into the rest of my life, it starts to crumble and fall apart and, and, and need fixing? Or is holiness about wholeness? 
And his holiness about that thing that brings all things together, that my work life and my play life and my rest life are somehow found in some sort of place of, of wholeness. Would it be better for me to be the type of person in, in, that was in my workplace that people said, there's a whole person? Because you kind of know what it's like to meet a whole person. Like we've met fragmented people, people that, that you kind of just get the fact that, that there's all these kind of nuts and bolts running through their life, but they're just not quite happening for them. But what would it look like to be whole, to feel like everything was in its right place, to feel that somehow something things made sense, that this core driving thought and your belief of this God and the, your, your, your philosophy on how the world works isn't something that's boxed out and just kept for Sundays, but something that kind of oozes out of who you are on an everyday basis. When we think of this notion of holiness, it's easy to sort of pitch it down the street and say it's way down there and it's something that's far off for me. But this word wholeness, of course, for me, I found myself then reflecting on Jeremiah chapter 29, which I know I've talked a lot to you about this particular year, but here you have this people of Israel, they find themselves in exile. They're, they've been taken from their land as political prisoners. They're, they're, they're away from their home, they're away from their language, they're away from their culture and their values and their religion. Everything's different from them. And the kind of feeling is, how do we revolt in such a way that we can take back the world that we live in? How can we, you know, how can we make Israel great again? And, um, and, and this is the sort of driving question that sort of, that, that, that's in their hearts so often. And then Jeremiah writes this letter to these people in exile. In the shocking moment, he says to them, actually seek the shalom of the city. A shalom is, is this, this Hebrew word that means peace. It's also actually a Hebrew word. It, it also means prosperity and wellness. It also means completeness. In fact, a really valid translation of the word shalom is wholeness. Seek the wholeness of the city where I've sent you in exile, God says to them. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, Jeremiah writes. And then he says this, because in its wholeness, you will find your wholeness. Jeremiah is saying, see, you can live over here and try and be separate, but life's always going to be fragmented for you because you're going to try and live out wholeness here, but not let all these other parts of your life be affected by that. That's not going to influence anything. That's not going to change anything. And your whole life is going to feel broken and fragmented and difficult to make sense of. And that's not holiness. That's just separation. That's just being cut out of the way that you were designed to live. Holiness is a call for all these things to work together. Uh, one scholar, Andy Johnson, says this about holiness in scripture. He says, the people of God are called to express their holy status by corporately modeling God's telos, God's goal, God's purpose for humanity, exhibiting compassion, reconciliation, joy, and peace and by embodying patterns of activity analogous to that of their lords, becoming channels through which God continues God's reconciling, redeeming purposes. You see, if our take on holiness is that we have to go and live over in a corner somewhere and that we have to, have to sort of go and hide out and wear long pants and throw out our makeup, and if holiness is, is something that, that involves being up a mountain but not, but not anywhere else, if, if holiness is something that requires us to stay away from the rest of our world, not only does it not bring us wholeness, the question is for, for those of us that, that wrestle with this as Christians, it doesn't bring wholeness to the world and we start to forget what it ultimately means to believe that God actually is for us. 
If God is for us, it means he's for all of us. And therefore, part of the role of, of, of being holy is to think about how that for usness of God leaks out of us. And it doesn't leak out of us in sermons and preaching and handing out tracts at work, but what does it look like to bring wholeness? What did wholeness look like for Jesus? What did it mean that Jesus was holy? Well, it meant that Jesus would walk down streets and people who were broken and people who were hurting and people who had been abused found themselves being healed and made whole again. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you whole, Jesus says to the woman. If Jesus walks down the street and everybody steps aside and it's a partied crowd and nobody touches him and he walks all the way down and leaves and people go, wow, isn't Jesus holy? The world isn't changed. Nothing's better. Everything's just the same. But Jesus, his holiness, calls him into a street and people touch him and things are better. If Jesus has come to the neighborhood, as John's gospel tells us he has, then things should be better in that neighborhood. Things should be more whole in that neighborhood. So why your work needs you to be whole is because your workplace needs to be better and your workplace needs to be more whole. And there's a lot of fragmentation in your workplace and there's a lot of fragmentation in your family and there's a lot of fragmentation in your own mind and you need wholeness. Like, I need wholeness. I, I, I need this sense of just, if it could just feel like everything was all together again. But your street needs wholeness. The couple across the road from you that are getting a divorce, the, the guy that works two cubicles down from you that's estranged from his kids, the, the guy you sit next to on the train that struggles with alcohol, like, they need wholeness. And they're not gonna find wholeness by you, you know, sitting in the corner running, rubbing sanitizer all over yourself so you don't catch pagan cooties. You know, uh, it's, it's not gonna work like that. In 1 Peter, in chapter one, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, writes to a group of his friends and he says this, it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you think holiness is the call to be separate and different, well, separate, but you know, and far away, rather than separate as dis different, this verse will terrify you. How can I be holy as God is holy? That's surely beyond me. But if Jesus calls us to be holy like him, which means to be in the neighborhood and let your wholeness kind of ooze out of you in a healing, redeeming way. Whether you're working or whether you're playing or whether you're just resting at your local Starbucks and, and enjoying it, does wholeness leak out of us? Because if holiness is wholeness, then maybe it's not so terrifying that God leans into us and says, be whole because I also am whole. Let's call that the introduction to this series. May God's grace and peace be with you. Thank you.